Section 21 of Elia and the Last Essays of Elia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arden. Elia and the Last Essays of Elia by Charles Lamb. Distant Correspondence. In a letter to B.F. Esquire of Sydney, New South Wales. My dear F., when I think how welcome the sight of a letter from the world where you were born must be to you in that strange one, to which you have been transplanted, I feel some compunctious visitings at my long silence, but indeed it is no easy effort to set about a correspondence at our distance. The weary world of waters between us oppresses the imagination. It is difficult to conceive how a scrawl of mine should ever stretch across it. It is a sort of presumption to expect that one's thoughts should live so far. It is like writing for posterity, and reminds me of one of Mrs. Rao's superscriptions, Alcander to Strephon, in the shades. Callie's post-angel is no more than would be expedient in such an intercourse. One drops a packet at Lombard Street, and in twenty-four hours a friend in Cumberland gets it as fresh as if it came in ice. It is only like whispering through a long trumpet. But suppose a tube let down from the moon, with yourself at one end and the man at the other, it would be some bulk to the spirit of conversation. If you knew that the dialogue exchanged with that interesting theosophist would take two or three revolutions of a higher luminary in its passage. Yet for aught I know, you may be some parasangs nigher that primitive idea, Plato's man, than we in England here have the honor to reckon ourselves. Epistolary matter usually comprises three topics, news, sentiment, and puns. In the latter, I include all non-serious subjects, or subjects serious in themselves, but treated after my fashion, non-seriously. And first, for news, and them the most desirable circumstance, I suppose, is that they shall be true. But what security can I have? that what I now send you for truth shall not before you get it unaccountably turn into a lie. For instance, our mutual friend P is at this present writing, my now, in good health, and enjoys a fair share of worldly reputation. You are glad to hear it. This is natural and friendly. But at this present reading, your now, he may possibly be in the bench or going to be hanged, which in reason ought to abate something of your transport, i.e. at hearing he was well, etc., or at least considerably to modify it. I am going to the play this evening, to have a laugh with Munden. You have no theatre, I think you told me, in your land of D-blank-D realities. You naturally lick your lips, and envy me my felicity. Think but a moment, and you will correct the hateful emotion. Why, it is Sunday morning with you, in 1823. This confusion of tenses, this grand solecism of two presents, is in a degree common to all postage. But if I sent you word to Bath, or the devices, that I was expecting the aforesaid treat this evening, Though at the moment you receive the intelligence, my full feast of fun would be over, yet there would be, for a day or two after, as you would well know, a smack, a relish, left upon my mental palate, which would give rational encouragement for you to foster a portion at least of the disagreeable passion which it was in part my intention to produce. But ten months hence, your envy or your sympathy would be as useless as a passion spent upon the dead. Not only does truth in these long intervals unessence herself, but what is harder, one cannot venture a crude fiction for the fear that it may ripen into a truth upon the voyage. What a wild, improbable banter I put upon you, some three years since, of Will Wetherall having married a servant-maid. I remember gravely consulting you how we were to receive her, for Will's wife was in no case to be rejected, and your no less serious replication in the matter, how tenderly you advised an abstemious introduction of literary topics before the lady with a caution not to be too forward in bringing on the carpet matters, more within the sphere of her intelligence, your deliberate judgment, or rather 
wise suspension of sentence, how far jacks and spits and mops could with propriety be introduced as subjects, whether the conscious avoiding of all such matters in discourse would not have a worse look than the taking of them casually are in our way, in what manner we should carry ourselves to our maid Becky. Mrs. William Weatherall being by, whether we should show more delicacy and a truer sense of respect for Will's wife, by treating Becky with our customary chiding before her, or by an unusual deferential civility paid to Becky as to a person of great worth, but thrown by the caprice of fate into a humble station. There were difficulties, I remember, on both sides, which he did me the favor to state with the precision of a lawyer, united to the tenderness of a friend. I laughed in my sleeve at your solemn pleadings, when, lo, while I was valuing myself upon this flam put upon you in New South Wales, the devil in England, jealous possibly of any lie children not his own, or working after my copy, has actually instigated our friend, not three days since, to the commission of a matrimony, which I had only conjured up for your diversion. William Weatherall has married Mrs. Cotterell's maid, but to take it in its truest sense, you will see, my dear F., that news from me must become history to you, which I neither profess to write, nor indeed care much for reading. No person, under a diviner, can with any prospect of veracity conduct the correspondence at such an arm's length. Two prophets, indeed, might thus interchange intelligence would affect the epoch of the writer, Habakkuk, falling in with the true present time of the receiver, Daniel. But then we are no prophets. Then as to sentiment, it fares little better with that. This kind of dish, above all, requires to be served up hot, or sent off in water plates, that your friend might have it, may have it almost as warm as yourself. If it have time to cool, it is the most tasteless of all cold meats. I have often smiled at a conceit of the late Lord C. It seems that travelling somewhere about Geneva, he came to some pretty green spot, a nook, where a willow or something hung so fantastically and invitingly over a stream, was it, or a rock, no matter. But the stillness and the repose, after a weary journey, tis likely, in a languid moment of his lordship's hot, restless life, so took his fancy, that he could imagine no place so proper in the event of his death to lay his bones in. This was all very natural and excusable as a sentiment, and shows his character in a very pleasing light, but when from a passing sentiment it came to be an act, and when by a positive testamentary disposal, his remains were actually carried all that way from England, who was there, some desperate sentimentalists excepted, that did not ask the question, why could not his lordship have found a spot as solitary, a nook as romantic, a tree as green and pendant, with a stream as emblematic to his purpose, in Surrey, in Dorset, or in Devon, Conceived the sentiment, boarded up, freighted, entered at the custom house, startling the tide waiters with a novelty, hoisted into a ship. Conceive it pawed about and handled between the rude jests of tarpaulin ruffians, a thing of its delicate texture, the salt bilge wetting it till it became as vapid as a damaged lustring. Suppose it in material danger. Mariners have some superstition about sentiments, of being tossed over in a fresh gale to some propitiatory shark. Spirit of St. Gotthard, save us from a quietus so foreign to the deviser's purpose. But it has happily evaded a fishy consummation. Trace it then to its lucky landing. At Lyon, shall we say, I have not the map before me. Jostled upon four men's shoulders, baiting at this town, stopping to refresh at Tother village. Waiting a passport here, a license there, the sanction of the magistracy in this district, the concurrence of the ecclesiastics in that canton, till at length it arrives at its destination, tired out and jaded from a brisk sentiment into a feature of silly pride 
a tawdly senseless affectation. How few sentiments, my dear F, I am afraid we can set down, in the sailor's phrase, as quite seaworthy. Lastly, to the agreeable levities, which though contemptible in bulk, are the twinkling corpuscula which should irradiate a right friendly epistle. Your puns and small jests are, I apprehend, extremely circumscribed in their sphere of action. They are so far from a capacity of being packed up and sent beyond sea, they will scarce endure to be transported by hand from this room to the next. Their vigor is as the instant of their birth. Their nutriment from their brief existence is the intellectual atmosphere of the bystanders. Or this, last, is the fine slime of Nihilus, the Melior Lutus, whose maternal recipiency is as necessary to the sole pater to their equivocal generation. A pun hath a hearty kind of present ear-kissing smack with it. You can no more transmit it in its pristine flavor than you can send a kiss. Have you not tried, in some instances, to palm off a yesterday's pun upon a gentleman, and has it answered? Not. But it was new to his hearing. But it did not seem to come new from you. It did not hitch in. It was like picking up at a village alehouse a two-days-old newspaper. You have not seen it before, but you resent the stale thing as an affront. This sort of merchandise, above all, requires a quick return. A pun, and its recognitory laugh, must be co-instantaneous. The one is the brisk lightning, the other the fierce thunder. A moment's interval, and the link is snapped. A pun is reflected from a friend's face as from a mirror, who would consult his sweet visnomy if the polished surface were two or three minutes, not to speak of twelve months, my dear F, in giving back its copy. I cannot image to myself whereabout you are. When I try to fix it, Peter Wilkins's island comes across me. Sometimes you seem to be in the Hades of thieves. I see Diogenes prying among you with his perpetual fruitless lantern. What must you be willing by this time to give for the sight of an honest man? You must almost have forgotten how we look. And tell me, what can your Sydneyites do? Are they thieving all day long? Merciful heaven, what property can stand against such a depredation? The kangaroos, your aborigines, do they keep their primitive simplicity on your tainted with those little short forepuds looking like a lesson framed by nature to the pickpocket? Mary, for diving into fobs, they are rather lamely provided a priori, but if the hue and cry were once up, they would show as fair a pair of hind shifters as the expertest locomotor in the colony. We hear the most improbable tales of this distance. Pray, is it true that the young Spartans among you are born with six fingers, which spoils their scanning. It must look very odd, but use reconciles. For their scansion, it is less to be regretted, for if they take it into their heads to be poets, it is odds, but they turn out, the greater part of them, vile plagiarists. Is there much difference to see two between the son of a thief and the grandson? Or where does the taint stop? Do you bleach in three or in four generations? I have many questions to put, but ten Delphic voyages can be made in a shorter time than it will take to satisfy my scruples. Do you grow your own hemp? What is your staple trade, exclusive of the national profession? I mean, your locksmiths, I take it, are some of your great capitalists. I am insensibly chatting to you as familiarly as when we used to exchange good morrows out of our old contiguous windows and pump famed Harcourt in the temple. Why did you ever leave that quiet corner? Why did I? With its complement of four poor elms, from whose smoke-dyed barks, the theme of jesting realists, I picked my first ladybirds. My heart is as dry as that spring sometimes proves in a thirsty August, when I revert to the space that is between us, a length of passage enough to render obsolete the phrases of our English letters before they can reach you. 
But while I talk, I think you hear me, thoughts dallying with vain surmise. I me, while thee the seas and sounding shores hold far away. Come back, before I am grown into a very old man, so as you shall hardly know me. Come, before Bridget walks on crutches. Girls whom you left children have become sage matrons, while you are tarrying there. The blooming Miss W. Blank R, you remember, Sally W. Blank R, called upon us yesterday, an aged crone. Folks whom you knew die off every year. Formerly, I thought that death was wearing out. I stood rampanted about with so many healthy friends. The departure of J.W., two springs back, corrected my delusion. Since then, the old divorcer has been busy. If you do not make haste to return, there will be little left to greet you of me or mine. End of section 21. Recording by Arden.